Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad to see you here today. Um, if you want to get started headed that direction, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 today. But I, as usual, I hope that you had a good week. It was definitely a warmer week, so it was something that we might be a little bit unaccustomed to with the weather over the last few weeks. Um, you know, when it's just cold like that, it's just hard to get out of bed. You just want to stay wrapped up and stay warm. But it was good at least to be outside a little bit this week, and hopefully you're able to reflect on what we've been talking about <coughs> um, from the messages. Continue to seek the Lord in your faith to understand why you are here and maybe how you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we've talked about over the last couple weeks. Now, as we've kind of gone through this mini-series, um, even I've been a little surprised at how the Lord has kind of organized some of these things. Um, it almost seems like you're doing some of the, the events or the messages in reverse. Um, but, you know, the Lord showed me this week as he was laying out this message that uh, I view it more like, you know, how the donkey describes in Shrek, that it's like an onion and you're just peeling back the layers to where, you know, we started with where we just kind of are, perhaps, maybe where we're asking that question of why are we here? And as you peel that back, that layer, you then delve into a little bit of understanding, are we here because we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And today, we're going to continue to talk a little bit deeper um, about why we love him, taking us back to our understanding of the gospel message, to our understanding of salvation, while we look at another strong verse when it comes to ministry and what Christians need to be about. So today we're going to discuss the gospel message, uh, the fact that we are new creations, and talk about the ministry of reconciliation. So this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read verses 11 through 21. Uh, if you are there and are able and willing, I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to you, to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I do pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. Lord, that you would meet us right where we are and that the Spirit would convict us, encourage us, and equip us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so as we kind of continue this look into purpose and division, uh, uh, we can see at the end of this passage how it talks about the ministry of, of reconciliation and how he says that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And most of the time as I'm reading over this passage, that's what I take from it, right? I just focus on the ambassadors for Christ section. And that's fine. At the same time, there's so much within this passage that we can back up and spend some time through and, and really take some time to, to walk through in, in a deeper way to understand what this reconciliation means for us, for our walk as we live this out in the lives around us. So as we start in this passage, I, I want to look at how this segment starts. You know, there in verse 11, you have the therefore, and you always ask what the therefore is there for. You see that he's talking about how the fear of the Lord is there. So we want to look up ahead and see some of that context. You know, when we look at chapter 5 as a whole, he's talking a lot about heaven. He's talking about what it would be like. And when you think about Paul in general as a writer, he has this desire, this passion to be with the Lord, to be in heaven. You know, I think of the times in the Bible that I resonate with, like, yeah, I'd much rather be with the Lord, but it's better for you if I'm here with you. You know, this is, this is Paul's heart. This is his attitude to constantly keep heaven in the minds of the people. So when we look at chapter 5 um, in the first few verses there, uh, I'm just going to focus a little bit more in depth um, on verses 8 through 10, where he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are away, or sorry, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, so when we think about this fear of the Lord, he is reminding them that everyone will sit before Christ. Everyone will get a, give an account of how they live their life, whether good or bad. What kind of fear of the Lord does that bring into your heart and mind? You know, and also with his writing, he gives this sense of imminence that, you know, we're not promised tomorrow, as we talked about last week, that it could happen at any moment. Are we ready to be before the Lord? You know, he, and he's also, in this section, stressing faith, understanding that we walk by faith and not by sight. And that, you know, when he's talking about these things, he's also talking about his ministry, where his aim is to please the Lord by his faith, as he is being obedient, as he is following what the Lord has commanded. So, you know, as, as we then turn this passage into more of understanding reconciliation, and at the end of the passage being ambassadors for Christ, we can see from the beginning, as he's talking about heaven, as he's talking about his ministry, he's actually giving a defense of what he is doing. He's giving a defense of his ministry before the people. Um, you know, understanding Paul's context, understanding what's going on, there's plenty of people that are detractors. Plenty, plenty of people that are saying, you know, Paul, you're only out there for your own gain, or you're only doing this for certain reasons, or you're not doing things in the right way. 
We see this throughout the New Testament. Um, but, you know, he's not doing things for gain. He's not doing things for popularity. Look into chapter t- 6 with me, um, beginning right after that quote in verse 2, where he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to, as to children, widen your hearts also. So you see, you see the different examples that he gives in terms of how life and ministry has been for him. And, you know, this is speaking to the Corinthians. He's speaking to the church, him and Timothy together. And this is the second letter. If you recall in the first letter, he gives a defense of the resurrection in chapter 15. And there he's saying, you know, if Christ has not died, then you are still in your sins and your faith is futile. And if Christ is not resurrected, we are to be the most pitied. You know, if, if we're doing all of this for a lie, if we're doing this all for our own gain, why would we go through beatings if, if it was a lie? Why would we go through imprisonments, sleepless nights, hunger, all of these things for something that wouldn't be true, for something that is supposedly building ourselves up when instead we're being beaten down. So in a way, Paul is defending the ministry that he is doing. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit deeper about that ministry in terms of the ministry of reconciliation in our passage. But when we go back into our segment, you know, the first few verses there, from verses 11 all the way up to the first part of verse 14... Again, he's giving this short defense that the fear of the Lord is what's causing them to go to persuade others uh, of the coming judgment, to help them understand that it's not for their gain, it's not for outward appearances. You know, so he's setting up this contrast between the two people types, those that are trying to have that gain for outward appearances and those that are like the apostles, like Paul, like Timothy. You know, and Jesus spoke about outward appearances as well. You think back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he calls out all these people who are, you know, being very showy with their giving, with their praying, um, with their fasting, and they're doing it for the wrong motives. And at the end of each of those sections, Jesus says, for truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You know, the heart and the motive behind what they're doing was important. And then you got to think of Paul's history as well, because Paul grew up in that context. He grew up being raised to be a Pharisee. In the book of Philippians, he, he says, 
you know, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the Pharisees of Pharisees. You know, and I had all of these things. He was zealous for God. And he was gaining power because he was persecuting the church. And then he goes on to say, he's like, all of these things, all of these outward appearances, I count them as loss. I count them as rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Christ. You know, all of these things that the world will tell you to, to pursue, that you have to get in order to have fame or acclamation or, you know, validity, they're worthless compared to Christ. When we think of the things that Paul had to go through, you know, he, he's basically saying, if I'm trying to use my sense of duty, if I'm trying to use my name, if I'm trying to use all of these other things as a way to do ministry, it's woefully inadequate. All of this other stuff doesn't matter. I mean, you think about what God says. He doesn't want your sacrifices. We talked about this again in Sunday school. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants a humble and contrite heart. He wants that humility. He wants that connection. And as he's sharing this, I think he gives one of the best reasons for sharing the gospel in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. The primary focus is on Christ. The primary focus is on Christ's love for them, not on their love for Christ. It is Christ who is in control. If I think about what first or what John says in first John four. Beginning in verse fifteen, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You know, you remember what I said last week. And how sharing the gospel is one of the greatest ways that we can love others. And it is done out of a place that we understand what Christ has done for us first. We have to understand that. You know, and, and then Paul goes and he breaks down his reasoning to why, why they're making this conclusion. As we continue in the second part of 14 and 15. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now this is the conclusion that they come to that, they, that spurs them on in ministry. This is one of the verses that you can just kind of sit with for a long time to understand what Christ did for us on the cross. The belief that on the cross, Christ acted on the behalf of everyone. One has died for all. You know, this becomes the foundational thinking 
of Paul's ministry. To have an understanding that, that Jesus provides a way of salvation for all people. And this is a provision. It's not universalism that just because he dies on the cross, everyone gets to be saved. Rather, salvation is open for all. You, know, you think about the implication of some of these statements. He died for all. Can that implication begin to take hold in our hearts? To where, like Paul, it changes our hearts and minds permanently in how we treat others, how we look at others. Because again, remember, Paul is coming from a very works-based mentality to think that you have to perform in order to gain favor with God. And changing to the fact that now every person that he talks to, every person that he interacts with is an object of God's love. One for whom Christ died. This defines his evangelistic perspective. It's why his evangelism is not exploiting or manipulating people. He didn't just share the gospel with his friends at the Pharisee camps. You know, when you think about that, when you think about the Judaizers that we've talked about in the past, those, those Jews who became Christians that said, no, 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 you have to become Jewish first. You know, they're trying to control salvation, saying that salvation's only for this group of people right here. Here comes Paul to break down this barrier and takes the gospel message to the Gentiles. Takes it to the ends of the earth for all to hear. He had come to understand and to know that he needed to love and see people the way that Christ did. And over the last couple weeks, I really began to dig into some of these phrases. One of the phrases found in verse 16. We regard no one according to the flesh. And I asked myself several questions. You know, do I live in a way that is for him? Who for my sake, for everybody else's sake around me, died and was raised? Am I unashamed in how I share the gospel message of Christ? Because it's the most important thing to do. Or do I control who I share it with? Saying that, ah, yeah, you're not really worthy. Or you're not there to hear yet. Am I that judge? Do I get to control that, that power of who hears? Is that why he gave me the word? Do I truly understand what he has done for the world? Or do I keep it about me? See, Paul saw more in Christ's death. It wasn't that ju just that he died for them, but that as he raised, he also raised everyone to be new creations. He believed, you know, that cross, that on the cross, that at least in principle, sinful humanity was destroyed. So that in Christ, a new humanity can be created. And he would go out boldly into the cities, into the regions, into the world to proclaim this gospel of grace. And as he proclaimed, there's this, this note of victory. Understanding the permanence of what Christ did on the cross to pay for sins. There's a confidence that could move forward to understand that the enemy no longer had control. The sin was dealt with. While in the reality, yes, sin was still a part of the world. 
but it no longer had dominion over the people's lives. Instead, it was Christ who ruled in the, for those that were in him and as a new creation. As new creations, we must submit and surrender our selfishness, our pride, and replace that with his righteousness. This is done through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is continually working in our lives through the process of sanctification where God is renewing our hearts and minds to be made into the image of his son. That is the truth. The truth that we must walk in daily. It's not a once you hear the message, you sit on the couch and everything's honky-dory, I got my ticket to heaven. But rather as we walk as new creations in this world, we proclaim the gospel message with our words, with our actions allowing everyone to know what Christ has done for us. You know, there's such an emphasis on the gospel message that's recorded in this passage. Let's look at verse 18 again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who through Christ reconciled, past tense. You know, if you recall, a few months ago when we talked about reconciliation, I gave you the definition that Noah Webster originally had in the 1800s. He's defined reconciliation as to conciliate anew, to call back into union and friendship the affections which have been alienated, to restore friendship or favor after estrangement as to reconcile men or parties who have been at variance, where you are brought into a state of favor with God after natural estrangement or enmity, the atonement, expiation. It's a pretty good definition. But look at what the Bible says right in our passage. The ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. You can see the mercy of God coming out in his character there. And then he is entrusting this message of reconciliation to to Paul, to Timothy, to the apostles to go and spread the word. This is the, uh, the description of the ministry that has been given to them. It's authentic. It's genuine. You know, when you think about religion, when you think about faith, James says that true religion is about taking care of the widows and the orphans. You know, when you think about religion, when you think about faith, a lot of times we look to man's relationship to God. You know, in the same way that A child has a certain relationship with a parent, whether good or bad. There's a relationship that exists there. In the same way, people have a relationship with God in terms of how is your walk doing? Do you believe? Are you an unbeliever? Are you saved? You know, when you think about the Christian conversations that you have, when you think about your prayer life for maybe lost loved ones, do you not sense that in your heart in terms of the burden for the lost? A burden for people to continue to grow closer to the Lord. We're, we're preoccupied with how we're doing with the Lord. You know, it, it takes me back to the creation moment. 
You know, when God created the heavens and the earth and he created humans, it was for relationship with him. That was his intention from the beginning, for humans to live in a relationship of trust and obedience. But then sin entered the world, created a hostility between God and man, an estrangement and enmity with him. And then through the recorded Bible that we have, we see how God in his love and his action through Christ reached out to reestablish that connection through the cross for us to be reconciled. And you look at what Paul says here. He implores the people of the Corinthians to be reconciled with God. You know, when he is defining his ministry of reconciliation, he's using words from politics in terms of we are ambassadors for Christ. You know, and we've talked about that term in the past, how an ambassador is like a diplomat. It is one that goes with a message representing someone with more power. He's acting on behalf of that person, um, not only as an agent, but a representative of that sovereign. You know, when we, when we think about uh, the duty that an ambassador has, it is to deliver a message, it is to represent, um, and he carries that out as a diplomat should. An ambassador would have um, authority. They would announce this message with authority for others to request, and then they would request the acceptance of that hearing. Now, a Christian is an ambassador for Christ, one who announces, one who appeals for God. And that appeal is to be reconciled. So as you think about what Paul is writing so far, as he's describing this ministry of reconciliation, you then come to another verse that you can just chew on, one that you can just sit with in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, to start off, you see the, the purpose word there of for. So he's giving a reason. You know, some people would say that this is one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture because it, it embraces the whole grounds of a sinner's reconciliation to God and declares that we might become the righteousness of God. He sums up so many parts of the gospel message that's to be shared. And as believers, I think that we can at times just sit and look at this verse in awe and wonder at what God has done. This is love. You know, I think about my own struggles at times with the issues of fairness. Complaints I have about things not being fair or, or maybe my kids and, and their back and forth about fairness and how I might be treating them. You think about all of these things that we like to complain about. These piddly little things compared to what Christ went through for our sakes. When I look at that, I'm left speechless. And there's a few things that you can notice in this verse. You notice that he doesn't say that you are going to be given, that you're going to get, that you're going to receive or have 
God's righteousness, but become. This is a term of identity. It's identifying us with God's righteousness in Christ. It also shows the sanctifying nature behind it. You know, when we come to Christ, we're not instantly perfected in the flesh. We are positionally justified before Christ, but we are being made into his image. We are becoming his righteousness. And again, there's a a lot of verses and a lot of ways that we can just sit with this verse. When we understand the mystery of reconciliation being expounded in this passage, we really look and see what Jesus did for us on the cross. Where it says that he was made to be sin. Now you can look at that in a couple of different ways. First, God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. When he poured out his wrath on him, Christ bore the guilt, he bore the penalty for all people's sins. The wages of sin is death. Romans tells us that. It is a clear teaching in scripture that Jesus was sinless, so he did not deserve the punishment. The fact that God poured out his wrath on him shows that he was made to be sin for us. Secondly, Jesus became a sin offering. You can go back and read Leviticus 4, Leviticus 5. It talks about different sin offerings and the requirements that were there. But Jesus is the perfect and final offering, one that's described in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 10. Where after he made his sacrifice, he sits down at the right hand of God, fully satisfying the requirements that God had. And third, Christ became the focus of sin under the judgment of God and the place in time and space where God chose to judge sin was on the cross. God judged sin permanently on the cross, past, present, and future. Sin is dealt with so that we who are in him might become the righteousness of God. Now, as I say that, that sin is dealt with, many times we're left wondering, well, what happens to the sin that I commit now? Well, first we have to start with, do we believe that Christ paid it all? Do we believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover for our sins? Or are we still hanging on to any type of works-based theology to where I still have to do something to help make myself clean? I think that we still wrestle with many times performance, with works-based understandings, with the struggle of whether or not God is going to condemn me versus understanding that Christ died once and for all for my sins. Yes, we repent. Yes, we confess sin. But we take it back to the cross to understand that it has been forgiven. And we receive that forgiveness. You know, I think as, as we struggle many times with that works-based understanding, we, we reflect maybe Matthew 7 and, and the people that come to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he will simply say to them, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Do we intimately know 
Christ today? Do we understand what he has done for us? To understand that he has made us into a new creation as we have believed the good news. Understanding that we were sinners separated from the Father at enmity with the Father because of our sin. And that Jesus came to die in our place, my place to pay for those sins so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Do you believe this? If so, walk in it. Today I want to close with a few verses or passages for homework. You can jot these down for this week to kind of study. <clears throat> John 6, along with Romans 10. Now, these are some harder passages to work through, for sure. And there are a few places that we can probably get hung up with maybe some of our presuppositions or as we're reading it, we can fall back into some old thought patterns. So my desire, my hope, is that we would read it with fresh eyes, continue to read over these passages in light of the reconciliation that we have received because of what Jesus has done for us. And that the gospel message, in its simplicity, can shine through. Not with us bogging it down with theological statements or defenses, but just reading the Bible for what it says. I'm always in awe at the simplicity of the gospel. And I'm in astonishment at my propensity to complicate it. Never fails. So today, as we kind of wrap up this mini-series, and as I leave you with this homework, I want us to continue to wrestle with that question of why we are here. To wrestle with our understanding of living out, how to live out, whether or not we are loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and understanding the truth that Jesus died for us on the cross to bring us reconciliation. Understanding what we are then called to do in terms of sharing that gospel message with those around us. Understanding the life that has been given to us as new creations in him. And I simply want to leave you with John 20 verse 31 today. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the saving grace that you have given us in Christ. And Lord, I just pray as we contemplate your, your heart, your words, that you would continue to guide us to be drawn closer to you. I pray that you would convict us in those areas that we desperately need your grace, that we would repent and turn from those areas where we're being idolatrous or we're lifting up and loving things other than you. And Lord, that you would continue to grow us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name I pray.